I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Je vole sous le soleil Sans toi, rien n'est pareil Je vole sous ton ciel je vole sous les nuages Tu allais, c'était bagage Je vole sous un toit Même si tes bras sont Bonjour et bienvenue and welcome to this very special episode of Rue Marc, where we jump back over the channel to the UK so I can make a rather important addition in the Rue Marc story. But just before we kick in, I want to make another very, very quick note. In case anyone else is wondering, yes, Tegan Higginbotham is my real name. <laughs> I had someone ask if I'd made it up as a joke. Uh, no, I haven't. This is it. It, this, this is my name. Turns out I sound like one of the servants from Downton Abbey or a rejected character from Harry Potter. And I get it. When your name is dumber than Bathilda Bagshot or Albus Dumbledore, you know you're in trouble. But this is where we're at. So I'm Tegan Higginbotham, really, and this is Ruler Mark. If you've been listening to the show for some time now, you'll know that my first trip to France wasn't great. It was, it was pretty shit, actually. The second trip with my newish boyfriend, Paul, was fantastic. And the third trip, where I took my parents along with us, really solidified the whole love affair. But for the sake of this episode, I need to go back to that third trip. In particular, the fortnight we spent in the UK before training over to Paris. It's not a steam train. You'll remember that it was Christmas time when we touched down in London. Christmas Eve Eve, to be precise. But what I didn't mention last time was that it wasn't only the Higginbothams that were involved in this great adventure. But Paul had invited his parents, as well as his sister Anne, who was currently living in London, to join us for Chrissy too. Some people travel to the beach for Christmas, some go to the park. We drag our family to the other side of the world. Now, a coordinated event on this large scale with so many moving parts really shouldn't have worked but my God, it did. And all seven of us had one of the loveliest Christmases ever. We got pelted with rain at the Kent Gardens Christmas light show, which was delightful and really well worth the effort. We took a bus out to the Warner Brothers studio for the Harry Potter studio tour, which made for a night that will forever be one of my all-time favourites. And we took photos in several locations pretending to be James Bond. So, you know, the usual stuff. But after a few days, it was time for my mum and dad to venture off on their own for a short while, as they'd made plans to spend New Year's Eve at River Cottage in the south of England. I remained in London with the Verhovens, and it was on the 28th of December that Anne announced she'd booked us all in for a bus tour that would take us to Windsor Castle, Stonehenge, and finally, the ancient city of Bath. 
Now, I've never loved the idea of going on bus tours. And after this one experience, I can't say that I've really changed my mind. In theory, they are excellent. You know, you get to see cool stuff without the stress of hiring a car or navigating public transport. However, it does leave you at the mercy of your fellow bus passengers. And as I'm sure we'll all agree, people are dicks. So it didn't take long for Paul and I to figure out that every time someone returned to the bus late, we'd have less time to spend at the next location. And this wasn't helped by the fact that by the time we left London, we were already behind schedule. Our first stop was Windsor Castle, and full disclosure, I'm a bit of a sucker for the Queen, so I was outrageously excited to be there. But by the time we arrived, the lines to get in were already snaking all the way around the vast property, and I gathered we were going to have to speed through in order to get back to the bus on time. I could tell that Paul was particularly agitated as we rushed from one room to the other, catching glimpses of the sweeping lawns and Eton College in the near distance. Nevertheless, the castle was magnificent, and I found myself particularly moved to stand within St George's Chapel, where Henry VIII, King George VI, Jane Seymour, Princess Margaret, and so many other notable figures in British history are interred. We sped down the lawns and got back to the bus in time, and then waited, because two of the passengers were taking their sweet-ass time. Our next stop was Stonehenge, and despite this being one of the wonders of the world and the best-known prehistoric monument in Europe, I approached with a sense of apprehension. A good friend had told me that she was really underwhelmed by Stonehenge when she'd visited the previous year, describing it as a few rocks next to a freeway. But I have to say... My experience was quite different. You get dropped off a fair way from the site itself and can either bus or walk to the stone circle via a long and, if I'm honest, a fairly unremarkable path. It was as we undertook this journey that I noticed Paul really wasn't having a good day and he seemed to be acting, I don't know, a little odd. Nevertheless, when we arrived at the site itself, we both perked up immeasurably. Now, I don't know if I believe in magic and all that. I certainly know that I want to. But in my mind, there was just something about Stonehenge. Beyond it being beautiful and overwhelming and utterly perplexing, it was also just one of those places where, I don't know, it it felt as if the air was charged with something. Do you know, it felt like like the air was alive. I don't know. It's hard to explain. you got to be there. The afternoon was getting darker as we trudged back to the bus, and by this stage, I was having a really nice day even though the f***heads were late again. So now we were on to our final destination, Bath. Known for its Roman-built baths, Bath is the largest city in County Somerset and is located in the valley of the River of Avon, 150 kilometres west of London. We're going to start a game. Everybody does shots every time I say Bath. By the time we arrived, the sky was black and the day had felt really long. However, I really enjoyed our tour guide's narration as we drove down into the misty valley. He pointed to a nearby building where the windows had oddly been bricked over and explained that for a while, the rulers of England introduced a window tax whereby they would calculate how much tax a household had to pay depending on the number of windows. So people started covering their windows up, thus leading some opponents of the contentious tax to label it daylight robbery. Isn't that cute? That's where the term comes from, daylight robbery. I thought it was cute. We arrived in the centre of Bath and we're told that because we were so behind on schedule, we only had 90 minutes to see the famous Roman baths and do any wandering around the town, which is simply 
not enough time. It's not enough time. That said, the two positives of this situation were that one, because we'd arrived at the bath so late in the day, we actually got in quite quickly as everyone else had already left. And two, although I'm sure the bath look wonderful by day, at night, when the tall braziers are lit and the flickering light of their fire dances across the inky green water of the bath, the whole place looks really spooky. And I'm quite grateful that I saw the place after dark. We rushed through, skipping anything that looked too educational, and reconvened with Paul's parents and his sister Anne back at the front of the bath abbey. Paul mentioned that with what little time he had left, he wanted to take me to see the historic Pulteney Bridge, which is one of only four bridges in the world that have shops across its full span on both sides, and is famously the scene of Javert's suicide in the 2012 film version of Les Miserables, which is fun. But Anne suggested that we all go get Cornish pasties instead, and naturally, I agreed with her. Paul was angry, Anne was happy, and I was stuffing my face. Afterwards, Paul looked at his phone and decided that we could still make it. So he ran off. He was literally speeding away from me. And reluctantly, I jogged along behind, regretting buying the largest pasty on offer. Now, the thing about Pulteney Bridge is that if you look really hard, you can find this small set of stairs leading from the top all the way down to this platform of sorts that looks over the swirling and tumultuous water feature below. I hurried down these stairs, and as I came around the corner, I caught sight of Paul, who was standing there, and he had, I don't know, he just had this funny look on his face, and one of his hands was in his pocket, and it was at this moment that I, I realised what was going on. Paul was about to propose. So then, for some inexplicable reason, my mind rushed back to the sodding buses, which I knew we were meant to return to in a matter of minutes. So before Paul had even gotten a word in, I said, I need more time, meaning in Bath, in this place, in this moment. But he thought I meant more time in the relationship. I think he thought I was shutting him down. So his face dropped and I, I had to apologise. I was like, oh, sorry, no, I didn't ignore what I said. Just, no, carry on, carry on, do your thing. Sorry, go on. Then he went to get down on one knee. But I, I kind of struggled with the imagery of that. You know, he isn't below me. I don't rule him. We're equals. So I grabbed onto his jacket and tried to hoist him back up, nearly sending both of us tumbling into the River Avon. I think I apologised again at this point. Then he asked me the question. Now, I, I wish I could say I remember the exact words, but I don't. I, I think it had all just become too much at that point. Nevertheless, I know that I agreed to whatever it was he'd suggested... He popped a ring on my finger and I just burst into tears. I don't know how long we stayed there for, but I know that pretty soon I asked Paul if he could get in contact with my parents and let them know the wonderful news. So Paul grabbed his mobile, which was the only one we'd been using during the trip, and he went to call my mum, who was still with Dad somewhere near Lyme Regis. So Paul got onto her and he said, Kaz, Kaz, I have something to tell you. Are you sitting down? And she said, yes. And he said, is Kev there too? Is Kevin with you? And my mum said, yes. And Paul said, right, is Kev there? You're both sitting down. Kaz, is Kev with you and you're both sitting down? And she said, yes, Paul, what is it? And then the phone cut out because Paul had run out of battery and we couldn't call him back for like 15 minutes. Meanwhile, mum and dad thought I'd been hit by a car. So here's a fun note for all you guys out there. If you're ever worried about announcing to the new in-laws that you've asked their baby girl to marry you, convince them that she's dead first. After that, any news is good news. So even if they hate you, they'll be like, oh, mate, 
Oh, thank God. No, that's fine. Absolutely, Mario. Do whatever you like as long as she's alive. After that call, we went back to the bus, naturally, and Paul told his parents and his sister Anne, while I just, I I was still crying. I cried for the whole night. I was so overwhelmed. I'll be honest with you, I'd never been one to think about getting married. In fact, for a long time, I was convinced that I wouldn't. I genuinely thought that. So it's safe to say that I was shocked by the monumental impact Paul's question had on me. And the following day, once the overall surprise had settled down, he and I felt like we were floating. It was like a drug. We just had the best time ever. And I was so excited. We told a couple of people, Beck, who I spoke about in episode two, and her husband, Jonathan, Adam McKenzie and his lovely wife, Rama, who we also heard from in episode two, and then, you know, just a couple of other friends back home. I told my sisters, and one of them asked why Paul chose to do it in such a stupid location. I was like, it wasn't stupid. Uh, It was romantic. Then she asked if he had his clothes on at the time, and I was like, what the hell are you talking about? Of course he had his clothes on. Why wouldn't he have his clothes on? It took a little more arguing backwards and forwards before I realised she thought he'd proposed in a bath, not bath bath, which would have been quite strange. Imagine that. Paul got down on one knee and then he drowned. But other than that, we kept the news quite private for some time. I try to, where possible, push back on the habit of sharing all of life's important moments on social media as soon as they happen. So it's with this in mind that I have to apologise to all you lovely Rulamark listeners because I might be a tad absent online for the next few weeks. The reason for this? Well, it's a bit complicated, but allow me to explain. After the proposal, Paul and I spent a few more days in London before heading down to St Margaret at Cliff near Dover for a week. Then we reconnected with my parents and headed over to Paris, which you all heard about in episode 5. While over there, Paul and I started having discussions about the type of wedding we'd like to have. Small was a priority. Because I actually get quite nervous in big crowds, which makes no sense at all given my job. But, you know, whatever, that's that's the choices I've made. And as stress-free as possible. And despite the fact that this might not be the acceptable thing to say, for two people who exist within the arts, we wanted it to be relatively cheap. I know that's not a cool thing to say, but who knows what could happen with work. I tried on a dress while I was in Paris. I couldn't help myself. It was the Claire de Lune by designer Donatelle Godard. I'd seen a picture of it on the Vogue Paris website months earlier, and without even thinking I was going to get married, I was like, well, that's the dress. It was either that for me or the dress that Sarah wears while she's dancing with David Bowie in the labyrinth, but we're not going to get into that. I went to Donatella Godard's studio and mum and I were pampered as the dress was readied. I tried it on and instantly I loved it. I was saying yes to all that dress, trust me. It fit, it was simple, I wouldn't have to wear a bra, which oddly enough is a big thing for me. But the dress was also about 3,000 euro. Ooh, so I took down all the details and I told them I'd think about it. Then Paul and I returned to Australia last January, a happily engaged couple, and I reveled in the process of buying bridal magazines, sending out inquiries and starting to figure out just how we wanted to do this wedding. Then... After a few months, once that initial glow had calmed down a little bit, I started to see the wedding machine as it exists in Australia, and I struggled to find my place within it. First of all, it is really hard to find a venue for a small group. Everyone wants you to have an event for like 100 to 150 people, which was never going to happen. Then there was the unique issue around the fact that I've performed at a lot of the smaller venues in Melbourne. More than anything, I didn't want my wedding to feel like a performance. I didn't want to click into stage mode, you know. So basically, anywhere that had a stage was off the list. 
The more we looked, the less inspired we felt. And despite everyone talking about this season's wedding trends, etc., it's all the same stuff, or at least it was from my perspective. One of the only real differences I noticed was that everyone is doing nude icing on their cakes lately or opting for big wheels of cheese. But otherwise, the wedding font, the colours, the little cacti everyone is handing out to their guests, the same weird wedding photos where the bride and the groom stand apart looking morosely at the camera as if they're modelling for Frankie. Or that other strange shot everyone's getting of the wedding dress, you know the one? The wedding dress hanging from the doorframe pre-ceremony like it's being haunted by a spooky, spooky ghost. It all looked the same to me. And don't get me wrong, it's all beautiful, I swear, I'm not having a go. But I felt like instead of planning our special day, it was a matter of choosing package A or package B. Do you want the beef or the lamb, the pop-up gin bar or the champagne on arrival? And what's that? It's going to cost you 15, 20, 25k, bye! Also... There are so many wedding venues where you have to be wrapped up by 10 or 11pm. And if a self-professed nana lady such as myself thinks it's too early to stop dancing, it is too early. Overall, the whole process made me feel as if the wedding industry was asking me to quantify how much I loved Paul. And that if I was trying to do something cheaper or was questioning the price, it meant that I didn't value our wedding as much. And I, I didn't like that idea. That made me feel uncomfortable Because the wedding is about the marriage, and the marriage shouldn't have a monetary value. Finally, mid-January 2019, that's not how you say that number. Finally, mid-January 2019, this year basically, Paul and I thought we'd found the place. We spotted this cool location on Hello May in Dalesford. It wasn't a wedding venue per se, but a property people could stay at for the weekend. So we'd figured we'd rent the big property, have the wedding on maybe a Saturday afternoon, let everybody chill out on Sunday and and just take the pressure down. So we got a quote and it was all looking fine until the owners got back in touch and said that because we were having a wedding, there would be an extra $2,000 fee. And I was like, oh, that's what's that for? Is that for seating? Is that for a marquee? Because we really, really don't need that. No, the fee was just cause, just cause wedding. We weren't exceeding numbers. We weren't doing anything differently to what they'd advertised. It was a love tax. And I figured they could stick that love tax up their ass. Paul and I came home from that outing and I was actually feeling a little bit upset. I just couldn't picture this wedding, this this monstrous thing. I shouldn't call it monstrous thing, but you know what I mean? It just become so stressful and I just couldn't picture it happening anymore. I couldn't see it in my head. Paul felt the same and he asked me what my best case scenario would be given everything. And I replied, I don't know, I just want to go to Paris and get married there. So listeners, he said, well, let's do that, and that's what we're going to do. If my release date calculations are correct, by the time you're listening to this, I will have just arrived in Paris, having given myself a little under three months to pull this thing together. Is it going to work? I don't know. (laughs) Maybe. But at the very least, I'm feeling excited again. The first time I visited France, I was heartbroken. The second time, I was in the throes of a new love. The third time, I'd just gotten engaged. And the fourth time, I'll be there to get married. While I'm in Paris, I'm looking forward to chatting with a few Ruler Mark guests, like Pierre from Paris, if the timing works out, and hopefully checking out his hometown, Chantilly of Chantilly. Paul and I are also looking forward to escaping the city walls and seeing some of the south of France during our stay. However, for now, we've got to focus on getting married. I really can't wait to share it all with you. But right now, I just hope you're having a great week. If you've missed out on any old episodes of Ruler Mark, feel free to catch up. 
I genuinely have spoken with some of the most wonderful people and their insights have been golden. You can subscribe and leave a review or check in via the Ruler Mark discussion group on Facebook. I'm Tegan Higginbotham and you've been listening to Ruler Mark. Au revoir. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.